What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 24, the penultimate episode of season one of So What? In this episode, we're getting into a topic we haven't even touched on the pod thus far. And it's a topic perfect for spooky season, especially since we're only nine days from Halloween, which you should only be celebrating in a socially distanced, masked way, and not in a group setting because Corona. But yes, yay Halloween! So in the spirit of Halloween, this episode is all about morning hair work. And I don't mean morning like, haha, good morning! I mean morning like, oh no, I am mourning the loss of someone. So today we're looking at Victorian hair work even, which is so exciting, specific, fun, flirty, all of those things. This episode is an interview with my pal and Victorian hair work fan and researcher, Avery Curran. Avery is doing her master's in Victorian studies at Birkbeck University of London. She's also an expert knitter and truly my fashion inspiration. She has the most amazing selection of 30s through 50s clothing and I live. Anyway, Avery's hair work work, work work, that's funny to me. Anyway, focuses on why hair and hair work mourning jewelry held such significance at the nexus of different social and economic anxieties in the mid to late 19th century. She also looks at the entrance of the economic market into the realm of grief and sentimentality, the 19th century trade in hair and the hauntedness of hair work, and the relationship of craft to the ideal home. Such good content, I truly love to see all of it. Avery studies 19th century hair work, so that's what we focus on in the interview, but I want to touch briefly on 17th and 18th century hair work to give you some good, good historical context. Also, if you're wondering why we're talking about hair work on a needlework podcast, just know that making hair work has always involved twisting and curving and braiding and weaving with needles and hands. It was a many-tooled skill. Okay, now it's time for some brief history. Let's start when English hair work starts, which is the 17th century. I haven't been able to find much of any scholarship on 17th century hair work beyond a series of blog posts from artofmourning.com. So shout out to that website because it's been pretty helpful. So it seems that memorial pieces of hair work jewelry could be commissioned by family members in the shape of bracelets, earrings, or whatever else from around the late 16th or early 17th century. William Shakespeare mentioned mourning rings in his 1616 will, so that trend was definitely around and happening. What is unclear to me, though, is when hair and mourning jewelry come together, and I'm still not quite sure how that happened. If you do, please let me know. And now, in terms of actual time period and subject matter, that's kind of when the scholarship drops off. So, like, bye to that, it's all me from here. But I've seen a lot of 17th century pieces of hair work, so I feel like I have an idea of what's going on. There are quite a few pieces of mourning hair work from the later part of the 17th century, and they are all straight up memento moris. A memento mori is defined as an object kept as a reminder of the inevitability of death. 17th century mourning hair work seems to be limited to brooches and pins and almost always features skulls and or skeletons. They are very, very much reminders of the inevitability of death. The skeletons and skulls are made of enamel and hold things like hourglasses and spades. The skeletons look jaunty, and I'm not sure why they seem like that to me, but I find them pretty funny. Of course, there are photos of them up on the So What social media pages. Almost always, those skeletons or skulls are accompanied by initials made out of gold wire, presumably the initials of the deceased person. Both the initials and skeletons slash skulls sit on a backdrop of woven hair. So basically, hair was very much a part of these pieces, but they were not the focus. They are merely one part of compositions that got all up in your face about the eventuality of death. 
They had big, big, we are all going to die someday energy. Hair work gets more popular and formalized and diverse and mainstream in the 18th century, so let's move to that. When it comes to 18th century hair work, a lot of my knowledge comes from Christiane Holmes' article, Sentimental Cuts, 18th Century Morning Jewelry with Hair. So thanks, Christiane. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. There's an E at the end of that name. So the 18th century saw morning jewelry become way more mainstream after they were made for an exclusive elite clientele in the 17th century. Whereas 17th century hair work memento mori stuff was rife with skeletons, the 18th century developed a whole new morning hair work aesthetic. It included landscape and garden scenes and single dramatic trees like weeping willows and cypresses. There were also graves, especially topped by urns, and female mourners sometimes crying over the graves while being shadowed by the droopy trees. If you've seen 18th century or early 19th century mourning embroidery from the US or UK, you've seen that exact kind of scene. I am posting an example on the Sew It social media so you can see for yourself what I'm talking about, and I'll be posting that alongside images of the other hair work stuff that we're talking about in this episode. You know it, you love it. Anyway, onwards. Christiane has a nice little summary of the development of mourning hair work over time, and here it is. Quote, In Baroque mourning jewels, hair is mostly presented in a simple single lock. During the 18th century, new techniques were developed to convert the fine material into artificial forms. These culminated in the hair industry of the 19th century, the significant forms of which have been characterized as an increasing hiding or disguising of the material's bodily origin." End quote. Basically, in comparison to the 19th century, in the 18th century, hair work was a bit more understated. It was most commonly under glass, in brooches or rings, or at the back of portrait miniatures, or in the frames of those same portrait miniatures. And it was a lot more about lamentation and sorrow, which absolutely reflected the increase in sentimentality that was seen in the 18th century, specifically in Western Europe and the American colonies. So yeah, it was pretty simple and understated before it went big and bold in the 19th century. And now, I hope that's enough historical context, let's move on to 19th century hair work with Avery. Here's the interview. Hello! I'll ask you the first question. How did you get into hair work, and how did you get into historic craft more generally? Because I know you are big into knitting, you knit the most amazing jumpers, and you wear a lot of vintage and historic fashions. So I'd love to hear your whole like origin story. So I've been interested in Victorian death culture for a long time. Uh, I did my undergrad dissertation on spiritualism, specifically gender and spiritualism in Tennessee after the Civil War. Um, and my dissertation was like about how this sort of group of Southern spiritualists uh, constructed an ideal of white womanhood that they based their ideas of mediumship around. So that was super fun. Um, and I kind of felt after I did that, like I wasn't quite done with it. Um, and I've always been really interested in how like modern attitudes to death have descended from those in the 19th century. But at the same time, Victorian ideas about death are feel really alien to us. Um, and there's loads of talk about, you know, oh, Queen Victoria did this after Prince Albert died. Crazy. Um, and like when you learn about Victorian relationships to things like seances, which were usually they're seen as like a positive experience, something really meaningful. Um, it's actually really strange when you think about it that one of our contemporary primary frameworks for understanding seances is the horror movie. Um, so I kind of wanted to sort of spend some time kind of working that out and kind of understanding sort of how Victorians related to death 
um, and how they kind of used material culture to understand death. And then I did my MA, I'm doing my MA in Victorian studies at Birkbeck College in London. Um, and this spring I had a module on death in Victorian culture, which was a weird and intense time in like March and April to spend all my life just like reading about dead people. Um, and during that module, I came across Herwork Jewelry via Deborah Lutz's article, The Dead Still Among Us, Victorian Secular Relics, Hair Jewelry and Death Culture. Um, and then I, I basically just Googled it. <laughs> and one thing you'll find if you Google Hairwork Morning Jewelry is a whole bunch of articles framing it as like really horrible and gross. Um, so like, oh, those crazy Victorians, what did they come up with next? Um, and there's a Vice article titled Sick But True. Victorian fashionistas made jewelry out of human hair. Um, and like with all the stuff that I knew about Victorian death culture that felt really off to me uh, and didn't wink, like ring true to what I know about Victorian relationship to death and like the, the kind of jewelry they made out of hair. So I decided to look into it further. And then I just spent like several months staring at loads of pictures of brooches with hair in it. Um, and so, like you said, like my own interest in knitting and historic craft gave me kind of an incentive to learn more about this specifically. Uh, like, I can't tell how long I spent looking at Victorian manuals on how to make hair jewelry being like, I know how to knit. Why can't I figure out how this works? They're so complicated. Um, and I, I was just completely mystified, which obviously, you know, makes me feel like it's a challenge. Um, but unfortunately, it's slightly more difficult to get uh, long strands of human hair than it is to get yarn and needles. So fair enough. I haven't actually tried to do it yet. But that maybe is my lockdown two project is to start getting my friends to send me their hair. Um, but yeah, so the way hair work interacts with uh, debates around gender, class and consumerism, which are all things I'm really interested in, is particularly interesting to me. Uh, and especially how some of those debates are kind of replicated now. So that's kind of the long and short of it. I love that. Obsessed. We'll send you my hair if you want it. Can you tell me more about your hair work, hair work research and what kind of stuff you found? Yeah, so I've been working on how craft and hair work in particular, like you said, sort of stood right in the middle of all these competing desires and anxieties swirling around in the mid-19th century, um, which is obviously a time of massive change in Britain for um, kind of industrial stuff and like em like empire stuff. <laughs> so obviously things are, are having a real moment in terms of things sort of being in flux um, and people are still working out kind of the ideal relationship uh, to have to the world of business and the world of commerce. So hair work jewelry in like a very quick potted history has been around basically since the 17th century. Like I'm sure there's stuff from earlier, but that's when it becomes a sort of popular mode of mourning. Um, and Deborah Lutz traces the first major craze for it to the 1780s, but it reached its zenith in terms of popularity in the mid 19th century before falling out of favor by the turn of the 20th century. Um, and its initial period of popularity in the 1780s coincides with a cultural interest in sentimentality um, so you can see like paintings by people like Groz, which are just full of like little girls crying over dead birds. Um, so that's kind of the perfect moment for like people to sort of start wearing their dead friend's hair on them. Uh, and at this point, hair work jewelry is like pretty recognizable as hair. Uh, but during the 19th century, trends moved away from braided hair behind glass, for example, in brooches and rings to jewelry made out of hair itself. So treated and elaborately woven or plaited to create watch trains, watch chains and bracelets. Uh, and all kinds of stuff. So it's at this point that people start worrying about the provenance of hair going into their jewelry. 
So demand for hair work was such that people often sent lots of hair by mail to be made into jewelry by an anonymous hair worker, who's usually a woman. Um, and rumors started spreading that the hair going into this mail order jewelry was not the hair of the deceased loved one, which you'd mailed in, which, so the rumor said, would simply be thrown away in favor of pre-made pieces using hair bought from the massive hair markets of continental Europe. Uh, and as a part of the body that doesn't degrade after death, hair has been understood as a synecdoche for the entire body, which is an idea put forward by Angela Rosenthal in her article very entertainingly named Raising Hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so once a loved one is buried, their hair worked into jewelry might become the last remaining part of their body. Um, and in fact, there's loads of Victorian hair work jewelry that's extant today, and look, it looks basically unchanged to when it was first made. So the idea of some kind of interference happening to a deceased husband, wife, child, or relative's hair in this context could be really horrifying because two different locks of the hair of the same color and texture are basically indistinguishable from one another. Particularly once treated and plaited, you might never know whether the jewelry you treasured was actually made from dearest Charles' precious locks or some like random exploited woman from a small village in France. Um, <laughs> because the hair trade was another part of the world of Victorian commerce that occasionally popped up like sensationally reported in newspapers um, and as one writer about hair put it human hair like most things is too frequently offered up by poverty at the shrine of wealth uh, so part of why this idea became so disturbing to victorians was that like you said it brought commerce in the market into the realms of emotion grief and sentimentality um, and there's lots of writing about how the idealized victorian middle class home was figured as a bulwark against the immoral and dangerous but still necessary world of capitalism so this means that for some Victorians, any intrusion of the market into the domestic world could be seen as like a destabilizing force um, that could kind of, you know, break down the morality of the home. Uh, and where did these locks of hair go? It left the home, the realm of emotion, and entered the world of commerce and industry to be worked on by an anonymous woman's hands. And if you're unlucky, to be thrown away and replaced in the service of efficiency. So hair work can expose for us the tension between Victorian sentimental culture and the market relationships that fundamentally underpin it, because the only way you can afford to send off your hair work jewelry is to make money. Uh, and the solution given by some in the industry was to make hair work into a profitable craft. So people like Alexana Spate, unfortunately not a woman, Alexana is a man's name, uh, I know, <laughs> who wrote a hair work manual in 1871 called The Lock of Hair. So he wrote a ton about the rumors of false hair work jewelry before then advertising his little hair working kits that you could buy an increasing order of opulence for half a guinea, a guinea, two guineas, and five guineas. So, like, if you bought the expensive one, you get, you know, a little pair of gold scissors and stuff. Cute. <laughs> uh, and eventually these controversies, alongside changing trends, helped hair work jewelry to fade into obscurity. Uh, in 1885, Cornhill Magazine ran an article about hair work jewelry makers describing a woman who remembered the heyday of the industry 25 years earlier while eking out a miserable existence with her hungry child in a tiny flat. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that the rumors about false hair work jewelry uh, played a part in the trend's demise, particularly because they fit so neatly into concerns that a lot of Victorians had about capitalism, poverty, mass manufacturing, and a bunch of other stuff. So from what I've seen of pictures of hair work online, it does shift from like what you mentioned, brooches and bracelets and rings like behind glass mm -hmm. to these kind of wild 3D structures. Yeah. How? How were these things made? I'm kind of mystified by how all this stuff works, despite having read like four or five different hair working manuals cover to cover. So I read this one by Mark Campbell, um, which was published in New York and London. And it's like 
to make the ones that are sort of structures of their own. Like it's still weirdly difficult to do the plotting ones where they're behind a brooch because um, it's not just like a sim. It's not a single plot. It's not really recognizable as a lock of hair. Um, it's usually like basically woven, um, mm-hmm. like woven in and out so that it can fit uh, a kind of flat surface. So it's not like a braid. So just so you know, for viewers, listeners who haven't actually seen this stuff, it's not a single braid. It's um, it covers the whole surface. We'll have photos on the so yes. social media pages. <laughs> so there's like a couple of ways of doing it. Always you have to treat it. And the way people usually treat it is by boiling it in water with a lump of soda, which is some mm. kind of great Victorian concoction. Um, and then you dry it and it has to be perfectly dry before you do anything else to it. Uh, so you often put it in the oven, which no, no, sounds like it should be fine. Um, and then you could basically buy a little table via mail order, uh, which is why this craft becomes like a massive industry of it in its own right. So like the home craft of hair work becomes its own thing because you have to buy specific equipment. So the table thing is like, <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's like a sort of cylindrical structure um, and it has a series of little weights hanging off of it. Like little bobbins. Kind of, yeah. And like you attach the hair to the weights and then cu- and that's how you sort of keep them separate while you weave it together. Now that's the part at which I stop understanding how they work because my <laughs> spatial reasoning is so bad. Um, but that's the general idea. Like you, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, those weird little um, kind of hand knitting machines that mm. were the, all the rage as a kid and they didn't yeah. really like knit anything real, but they had like little loops and you go around in a circle. Yeah. It looks kind of like that, but big. Um, and there's like different patterns for how you do it. Like, you, you know, you number the strands and like strand one goes over strand six and all that kind of stuff. So it's incredibly complex and difficult to do and requires like a pretty significant investment outright. Um, but then there were easier ways. So you'd have to treat it anyway with soda, but you could also uh, use little patterns for Prince of Wales feathers, which were a kind of elaborate uh, feather design. So if you imagine um, like a, a sort of old timey hat with a feather in it, like a big plumed sure. feather, that's what they look like. And they're basically made out of tiny bits of hair glued down onto a brooch um, and then covered in glass. So that's another of the big classic hair work styles that you can do with a bit less massive equipment. So you talked about how hair work got really popular in the 19th century after being in vogue, but slightly more contained in the 17th and then 18th centuries. Is there a specific moment when that shifts, when it gets really popular and kind of industrialized? I mean, it's not part of factory work, but all of a sudden it moves from personal, you know, from people making it in the home to all of a sudden there's this industry of strangers working with other strangers' hair. And I'm so curious, like, is there a, is that indicative of a larger shift or did something all of a sudden happen or was that a gradual change? It's hard to pin it down exactly. um, And I am not a dates woman. That is so, (laughs) But I would say, like around the 1840s to 1850s, probably more in the 1850s. Like I would say the trend gets really huge in about the 1840s. Um, And then by the 1850s, it's gotten so big that it makes sense to have these like real factories, essentially. Like it's, you can't really automate uh, hair work. Like there's no way to make it a machine. Mm -hmm. Um, But the scale just, I think, shifts at that point. And it's around the 1850s 
um, and then probably reaching a peak in the 1860s, I would say, which makes sense for a couple of like cultural reasons in that um, it becomes more profitable as an industry at that point after people have, have gotten really into it. It makes more sense as a business venture to start opening up a workshop full of like 20 women who are just out there like making the hair. Um, although interestingly, usually the actual jewelers who deal with the metal are men. Mm-hmm. And it's the bit that gets way more credit, even though the actual production of hair jewelry is unbelievably complex. <laughs> Classic. Classic. Um, but yeah, so I would say the 1840s is when it becomes massively popular. The 1850s is probably when this big shift to um, like anonymized workers happens. And then the 1860s is the zenith. And then the 1860s to 70s, I would say, begins the backlash. Mm. Um, so a lot of the hair work manuals that are extant are from the 1860s and 70s, which is basically when people start saying, okay, like you may have known how to do this like decades ago, but then we all got so used to and like started relying on like mail order jewelry. Uh, and now you think that might be some rando's hair. So it's time to learn how to do it yourself. That makes sense. I would love to hear more about the idea of hauntedness in hair jewelry in the Victorian world, because when I first read that in your work, I was like, oh my God, what is happening? Tell me more. So now it's my opportunity to indeed have you tell me more just in time (laughs) for the Halloween season. So this was one of my favorite ideas to chew on when I was researching hair jewelry. So I'm very glad that you've asked. Um, uh, my view of it is that Victorian hair work wasn't necessarily haunted in the traditional sense. So I've already kind of rudely shown up here just before Halloween and tried to show how like Victorian death culture isn't actually like that spooky, like we shouldn't see it as grotesque and morbid, like it's intended in a sentimental way. Um, it's just a completely different frame of reference of what sentimental means than ours. Um, but there is a hauntedness to hair jewelry just in a slightly different way. Um, so Victorians were very concerned about the provenance of the hair going into, into fraudulent hair jewelry. So when it would be the hair of strangers rather than the hair you sent in, uh, human hair in the 19th century commanded really impressive prices. And it was often taken from poor women who sold it to make ends meet. Um, and really horrifyingly until the 1850s, and probably still later, it was shorn from women who were being sent to prison or hospitals or workhouses Mm. and then sold. Mm. (laughs) And it was also associated with grave robbing and body snatching. Uh, And in in 1868, the Times ran an article saying, inasmuch as human hair of any fine quality is worth four or five times as much per ounce as silver, the temptation to rob the dead is enough to make us uneasy. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) yeah so it's definitely uh, a big concern for people Um, and as it moved from a sort of small-scale production of hair work jewelry to a larger uh, almost like mass-produced mail order model sometimes this worked fine and sometimes like I've mentioned there were reports of retailers straight up just throwing the hair they received into the trash Um, (laughs) and as you can imagine like as hair work got really big it became hard to keep up with demand Mm -hmm. Um, it's really difficult to make this jewelry it's fiddly and complex and it requires an enormous amount of skill Um, and there were a set of popular designs that got ordered again and again so the classic image of hair work jewelry is like an oval brooch uh, an oval brooch with a bed of braided hair behind glass 
Yeah. Um, but there's also things like rings with hair work along the band, um, patterns like Prince of Wales feathers or weeping willow trees all made out of tiny pieces of hair. So you can basically predict what a customer wants and then use this like random stolen hair or like the hair of a woman being sent to jail, uh, usually for like sex work or theft, um, basically like crimes associated with exploitation and poverty. Uh, that's all just like going into this jewelry to be maybe made for a customer. That is um, spooky energy. That is so spooky. Yeah. So that being said, and this is kind of going off topic, but I'll get back okay. on track soon. No, I love it. One thing I began to suspect over the course of working on this topic was that this problem might not actually have been as widespread as people suggested. So we know about the hair trade because it's relatively easy to document. Um, it wasn't all black market. In fact, lots of it was perfectly legal. Uh, there were like massive hair markets in parts of the south of France, um, and it would just be completely legally imported into the UK. So we know how big the hair market is. But in terms of actual false hair work jewelry, I've never seen any evidence of it actually happening. Um, <laughs> which okay. isn't to say it wasn't happening, but the fact that there's never been any kind of real proof or like I've never seen someone who worked in hair work jewelry admitting that this was a practice they engaged in, um, it caused an enormous amount of concern for something that's basically unprovable. Um, and it speaks to a, a lot to the way that hair occupied this like particular position of symbolic power, that existing concerns about the morality of the world of commerce and the role of manufacturing are so easily distilled into this one thing. So my thought is kind of that these hair work manual writers, who are a big source for us about the hair work industry, are actually just trying to find a way to get people to buy either hair work made by them, which they say, don't worry, we always use the hair you send in. Mm. or to buy the kits to make your own, which is obviously incredibly profitable for them. So, <laughs> basically the hauntedness of hair work jewellery can then be seen in the Victorians' relationship with their own society. So not so much, is this like a cursed amulet? Is this hair from a sad woman? <laughs> it's more in the sense of um, the commodity gothic, which is an idea I've been really interested in. Ooh. Um, so the scholar Aviva Brufel has written about the spiritualist practice of table wrapping, uh, where messages would be knocked out on a table by a spirit and the table might levitate. Um, and she says that when a table moves, critics imagine that its energy, quote, emanated from the residue of anonymous labor found in commodities. And she's found loads of like articles and cartoons and punch and all sorts of things where it's all about the table as like a like containing labor. Um, and like maybe the people who made the table are somehow enacting their energy on the table. And this is all contemporary. Um, so haunted objects in the commodity Gothic lay bare the exploitation behind their origins. So another object or, or another sort of product uh, that's thought of in terms of the commodity Gothic a lot is a pretty familiar one. Um, and it's sugar, which was often produced by enslaved people. Mm -hmm. and was understood by some as being imbued with the suffering that created it. Um, mm -hmm. And there's some very interesting writing, I believe by Elaine Showalter, on... Love her. Yeah. I love her. On um, the idea of the chairs in Jane Eyre being made out of mahogany, and you can't fully understand what the significance of those chairs is until you've traced the origin of the wood to the enslaved people who chopped it down. So it's, it's all sorts of things like that. Um, 
where objects are seen as being imbued with the suffering that created them. So the hauntedness of hair jewellery, to finally get back to your actual question, (laughs) is in a way the hauntedness of the Victorian world of commerce itself. So all that progress, all that profit, in a way, is just resting on a foundation of exploitation and suffering. And they knew this, like this, this wasn't a surprise to them. So the second something goes wrong, the second your sentimental object becomes a site not of comfort, but of disturbance when you begin to believe whether or not it's true, that maybe it's not your loved one's hair, but it's hair taken from a grave or it's hair taken from a woman in a workhouse. All of those fears and anxieties start bubbling up to the surface. Wow. That was rad. I mean, the issues (laughs) that you're talking about are not rad, but your explanation was great and so fascinating. So thank you. The classic so what question is, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? So in this, I'm going to diverge a little bit from the topic of hair work because I am a pretty advanced knitter. I spend a very large amount of my life knitting stuff. I make all my sweaters. At this point in my life, I make all my socks. Yes. Um, (laughs) uh, And it's like really crucial to my mental health when things are really uncertain. So since the pandemic started, I've been knitting a ton. um, And it's really nice to be able to make beautiful and useful things that give you pleasure when you're stuck indoors. And like a lot of the things that used to kind of construct your identity and like the stuff you do aren't available to you. Um, And there's other documented health benefits, like it lowers your heart rate and blood pressure. um, And it's actually just really good for you. So Personally, the role of needlework for me is huge. Um, But on a broader level, needlework is crucial in another way, mostly through the unseen, underappreciated and underpaid labor of basically largely women workers in the global south. So the massive global industry of garments and needlework and textiles relies on and exploits these workers. And frankly, I would think it would be pretty appropriate if we were haunted by these goods in the same way the Victorians were haunted by their mass produced hair work. So I think crafting, and please read some like heavy quote marks there, because I would really like to acknowledge the work done by garment workers with more of the respect given to, you know, quote unquote, handcrafts. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how crafting is cast as something that can be borderline radical. So it's slow fashion. It's good for the environment. It's like rustic. It's cottagecore. It's making you more in tune with the rhythm of creation or whatever. And a certain kind of knitter usually a white middle-class woman making her own clothes is almost seen as being able to opt out of the unethical nature of consumption under capitalism. But I think there's like a lot to interrogate about this idea. So for one thing, casting this as a morally superior action elides how it's just not a possibility for the majority of people. Like knitting a garment takes time. Most sweaters take me about a month to make um, and I'm basically a pretty quick knitter. So that implies a certain amount of free time. And then there's the question of materials. If you want to avoid releasing microplastics down the drain every time you wash a garment, you have to avoid acrylic yarns or yarns treated to be washable in the washing machine. But then not only do you cut out the cheapest yarn available, you also mean that people have to hand wash their own clothes, which is a nightmare. Um, And further to that, you have to buy materials. You're not avoiding consumption. You're just displacing it onto a different industry and a different set of workers. So this isn't to say there aren't knitters of color and working class knitters and knitters who have kids and little spare time or indeed um, outlets for yarn that are really ethical and able to trace everything and treat their workers well. And in fact, some of the most exciting design and activist work in the industry is being done by people who fall into those categories. 
but it doesn't make handcraft a neutral activity. So this sort of William Morris-esque cottagecore crafting ideal obviously has a lot of appeal to it, and I don't want to make it all sound terrible because there is a reason why I do it. But it can be exclusionary and it can ignore the realities of what crafting means in a capitalist world connected by globalization, blah, blah, blah. So the Victorians thought about these questions a lot as well. In the 19th century, working class women often needed to be skilled at handcraft. Needlework was not only a way of providing for themselves and their families through making their own clothes, darning things to make them last longer, altering clothes to keep up with needs and fashions like letting a a hem out, but it could also be a way of making money. And women would often take on sort of freelance needlework activities to sort of make ends meet in their home. At the same time, handcraft became valued by certain sets of wealthy women as a way of proving that they had access to leisure time. So if you could spend an afternoon making a piece of artificial coral to display on your mantelpiece, or if you could spend time making an elaborate piece of hairwork jewelry, it was likely you had access to servants and the access to the equipment that you needed to make these items. So certain kinds of crafting then become a status symbol. Um, Which is all a very long way of saying, I think needlework and craft is incredibly important to the world today, both personally and societally, but it'd behoove us to remember that we're not actually free of some of the contradictions and exploitation that were woven into the fabric, if you pardon my pun, of Victorian needlework. That was so good. (laughs) So well said, so eloquent, and so right. You really successfully and evocatively brought the past together with the present. So I'm screaming. The Victorians are screaming. (laughs) Everybody listening to the podcast screaming. And last question is, how can people learn more about your work? Do you have anything you'd like to promote? How do we get to know more about Avery Curran? So I am currently unemployed. So if anyone hears this and wants to give me a job based on it, please be my guest. Yes. But in general, you can follow me on Twitter at Avery Elizabeth 8 which is Elizabeth with an S, uh, where whenever I have a deadline, I inevitably start tweeting about like hair or weird stuff about ghosts. So if that appeals to you, please feel free to go over and check it out. Uh, I don't actually have anything of my own to promote at the moment, but I would recommend that everyone who's able to donates to The Bail Project, which is at thebailproject.org. Heck yeah. Avery, it's been such a treat. Thank you so much for doing this. I had so much fun. Thank you for asking me. There it was, my fun fab interview with Avery. What a spooky delight, right? I've loved hair work since I first saw some examples in person at the Bronte Parsonage Museum, so I'm really happy to learn more from Avery, my resident hair work expert. And I hope you learned some stuff too. I don't think any of us will look at hair the same way again. I will see you all next week for the last episode of season one of So What? That is so wild. Time goes by so slowly and yet so quickly at the same time. Next episode is a conversation with the Yale Center of British Arts, Ed Town, about an upcoming book that involves some heckin' good needlework. So get excited about that. Going out with a bang. Okay, that's it from me this week. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a friend of the pod. Now go out and stitch some stories, and maybe don't use the hair of your deceased loved ones to make jewelry, because in this day and age, that'd be pretty weird. Bye!